servers will be uh, picking up the cups here. And while they're doing that, I would urge you or ask you or invite you to turn with me to Psalm 85 as uh, we consider God's Word and see what He has for us today. Psalm 85 in your Bibles, please. Don't really know who wrote this psalm. Don't really know the exact date on it, but from the language, we assume that it's a psalm that was written after the exile, after the Israelites came back from Babylon, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Psalm 85, verse 1, You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. All right, Jenny, if you would fire that slide up, first slide up on the screen, I would appreciate that. Most of you know that I was born in the city of Rotterdam in Holland. I was born shortly after the Second World War ended, and when I, when I was a boy and when I was growing up, I remember a good part of the city still being damaged. In May of 1940, on the 10th of May of 1940, by the way, I did this presentation to uh, a whole bunch of uh, homeschool kids here uh, just a little bit less than a month ago, just before Remembrance Day, and uh, we had a uh, great time together. But on the 10th of May in 1940, Nazi Germany invaded our little country of Holland, and we fell in very short order. We didn't have much of an air force or much of an army, and so basically the Germans ran over our land. They dropped in paratroopers. They, they brought tanks and, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> material equipment and material and equipment across the borders and overran our country. Our royal house fled, went to Great Britain, and um, was there for a while, and then spent the rest of the war in Canada, in Ottawa. But this is what our city looked like on the 10th of May. Um, this little... This complex here, this is our city hall. Uh, this was a concert hall at one time. And over here is one of the, one of the medieval structures. There's a big church that was left over from the Middle Ages. But what happened was on the, the, the Nazi Germany could not enter the city of Rotterdam because a regiment of Marines was holding several key bridges. And so the Nazis got frustrated and they said, we are going to bomb that city flat unless you capitulate. Now there is some debate over whether or not the message was sent or whether or not the message was received. 
But, it, but the results were this. On the 10th of May, we were invaded. On the 14th of May, the city was bombed. This was the downtown core. Here's what it looked like when I was a boy. Okay, going back. Okay, here's City Hall again. Here's the concert building. And here's that medieval church. And this is one of the bridges that they couldn't get across. This is the big river that goes out. Uh, Rotterdam was a world-class port. It was always a city where, where we as Rotterdamers competed with New York as to who had the biggest and best harbor in the world. And, and uh, it's still going back and forth there. So here we are. This is what it was before. Here it is after. Here's another part of the city where this is what was left of that church that I showed you before. And I remember being in that church uh, just as it, uh, when the first phase of restoration was completed, basically burned. Uh, there was a firestorm in the city. That firestorm lasted for four days. Uh, my dad was uh, one, of the one of the firefighters, and he would get uh, the other firemen to spray him down with hoses and go into burning buildings and, and pull people out. Uh, about 1,000 people got killed. Uh, 25,000 homes were destroyed and 80,000 people were left homeless as a result of that. Here's another part of the city. You'll probably notice a windmill right in the middle here. Uh, that windmill was still standing when I was a boy, but it burnt down sometime later. This is before, this is after. Okay, again, before uh, and after. And then here's another part of the city. This building here is called the White House. And uh, the, the tram tracks, the streetcar tracks, used to go right past the front of this. And in fact, I went by this building, I don't know how many times when I was a kid on our way to downtown on the tram. Again, it's a before picture, and here is the after picture. Thanks, Jenny. Now, that city got devastated. A lot of years before that, in the year 586 B.C., Jerusalem also was destroyed. And that desolation of the city, that, that desolation of Rotterdam didn't last that long. There, was, there were five years of war. By the way, that happened on the 14th of May, and nine days later, on the 23rd of May, my sister was born by the light of a flashlight uh, because there was absolutely no electricity in the city uh, at that particular time. They went through five years of that when I was a kid, uh, most of what I remember was like that. Much of it was still rubble. And uh, the rebuilding was just beginning when I left Holland uh, at the age of 10. It's been completely rebuilt. It didn't lay desolate for 70 years. It lay desolate probably for about 10 years. Uh, and then the rebuilding started. The desolation of Jerusalem lasted 70 years. And the main return happened under Zerubbabel. And if you want to read that story sometime, Read Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible, and you will find out what conditions were like, particularly the story of Nehemiah. You will find out what conditions were like and how people were disappointed when they came back and, and found the city the way it was. Those people lived in chaos. And yes, we, we don't live in that kind of chaos today, but we have our own chaos in our own lives. Now, there are people who struggle with illness, with dysfunctional marriages and families, people who have to deal with aging and relational struggles and finances and jobs and all the rest of that. But the reality is, even though we may live in some kind of chaos, whether it's personal, whether it's in a city, whether it's national, 
the reality is that in the midst of this chaos, Advent, this season of Advent, this season of preparing for the return of Jesus Christ gives us hope. How does that happen? Well, there are some lessons I think that we need to learn this morning. And one of the lessons I don't really need to teach you, you know this already. And the lesson is this, that you and I live in a messy world. It's just that way. The situation in Jerusalem when the psalmist was writing this psalm was messy. The people had come back from, from 70 years of exile and they had returned to this city that was flattened. It was burned. The temple was gone. The city was destroyed. It was a mess. And for 70 years they had been talking about this. They had been hoping about it. They didn't have pictures of what life used to be like before. Had They had memories. They probably had the stories that their parents and grandparents told somewhere along the line and someday they were hoping to go back to Jerusalem and when they got back to Jerusalem it wasn't the city <coughs> excuse me it wasn't the city anymore <coughs> than it used to be the city was in ruins the houses were a shamble and the streets were ruled by thugs and muggers and bullies and all their dreams were null and void and all these Promises that God had made about restoring his people Israel probably seemed like an illusion. And so here's their prayer. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, verse 4 in Psalm 85, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation because they probably felt that they weren't particularly favored about at that time. What about us? We know the promises of God. We try to follow his commands and his decrees. We try and follow the principles of Scripture, and still life comes unglued all around us. We hear of bad things happening good to good people. And the reality is they do when we, when we share our prayer requests here on Sunday morning, when we meet, <coughs> excuse me, when we meet together at noon on Tuesdays, people put these requests out. My life is coming unglued. Whether it's my health, whether it's my friend, whether it's something else, we go through struggles. And we ask ourselves the question, if there is this God who loves us, where is he? Our daughter right now is having a bear of a time trying to regulate the diabetes of a six-year-old child. Why does a six-year-old have to get diabetes? Why do two or three-year-olds have to get it? Why do children get cancer and die? I don't know. Why do these bad things happen to, to good people? Why do marriages come unglued? Why do, why do things just happen? And so often we struggle with life in spite of our faith in God, and often life just doesn't seem fair. And the reality is that we live in a messy world. All of us do. And we all have our own personal messes, and you may look at someone else's life and say, well, if I just had that person's life, I would be happy. But the reality is if you scratch beneath the surface of someone else's life, you probably find some kind of mess. 
Yeah, we know about God's work. If you look at the first three verses of this psalm, he writes, You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned your fierce anger. And, and, and they knew that reality. They knew the stories of the Bible. They knew that God had brought the people of Israel, created this people called Israel, brought them out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, brought them through uh, into the promised land, and then they had to, to fight for a number of years to conquer it. There was the time of the judges, and then there were the time of the kings when Israel rose to fame and prominence and glory and all the rest of this and, and, and how God, how people would sin and then God would punish them and then God would deliver them and etc., etc. They knew all that. And you and I know that too. We know for the most part, we know some biblical history. We know about the birth of Christ. We know about the birth of the church and, and you need to read some of the stories sometime about the martyrs, about the people who were put to death for their faith, the fledgling church when it first started. We know, we know the stories of persecution and survival and victory and martyrdom and faith, and then there's our own personal journey, how we have overcome some things, how he, we have walked through trials, how God has kept us, how God has protected us. If you were to talk to Ray and Esther, I'm sure they could tell you stories. How did their family get to this point where they are scattered all over the world? It sounds good, but I know that they've come through hard times too, as, a, as have all of the rest of us. We know about God's work. And yes, we have a hope in this world. And here the man who wrote this psalm talks of the memory of the God who initiated deliverance. And he celebrates this God, this God of liberating promises. He knows that God will transform and ultimately overcome the current devastation that is tearing them apart. And the man who wrote this psalm trusts in the one who saved his people once before from oppression and despair and whose very character promises to do the same thing again. He says in verse 8, I will listen to what the Lord God will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. We have a hope in this world. And yet, we look at this world and we look at the chaos of our own lives sometimes. And, and we read words like verse 9, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him and say, God, when's that going to happen? Like I could sure experience some peace and some tranquility in, in my life. When is that going to happen? Sometimes it's hard to believe that God really is going to straighten this world out. Look at the next few verses. It says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Really? Where? Righteousness and peace kiss each other in Afghanistan. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. When is this going to happen? Verse 12, the Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. When, Lord? 
Are you kidding us or is this really going to happen? But the reality is that we have a hope that is beyond this world. And the memories and hope that the psalmist had, we find embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't worship as did the writer of this psalm in a devastated and ruined city. But we do gather under what seems to be devastation and ruin. This morning, we observed communion. We observed the Lord's Supper. And we gathered under the cross. And if there was ever a statement of defeat, a statement of chaos, it was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a statement that almost said, it is finished, it is over. And the reality is that you and I today in 2011 sometimes still live in this Good Friday kind of world where things come unglued around us. And you might ask yourself this question, if the forces of this world can kill Jesus, then where is our hope? And the reality is, is that hope is in the middle of a ruined city like it was in that city of Rotterdam, like it was in the city of Jerusalem. Hope lies at the foot of the cross. And hope does not prevent or change tragic circumstances. Hope does not change the circumstances in which you and I live, but hope enables us to go through those circumstances. Hope carries us through the chaos of the world in which you and I live. And sometimes, like a destroyed city, the cross can be seen as a final sign of cynicism and despair. Sometimes we look at the cross and it seems like Evil gets the last word, that love is a fraud, that goodness is up for grabs, and that hope is a pathetic joke. And we can look at the cross and we say, well, that's, that's the symbol. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't look good. But the cross isn't that kind of symbol. And we're gathered here this morning to worship the God who through the toughest, the most unfair, and the most troubled and inhumane circumstances bears us new hope. Why? Because the cross is empty. Christ is risen, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we celebrate not only the cross when we participate in communion, but we also celebrate the reality before that. Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And if it ended there, there wouldn't be much hope. But we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Advent reminds us that if Jesus Christ came once and we're gathered here this morning because we believe that, we believe that Jesus Christ came once, that he came to offer us salvation, that he came to die on this cross, that he's not there anymore, that he rose from the dead. But we believe that there is an advent yet to come. Hebrews 9.28 tells us that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And because he was sacrificed once, he will appear a second time. You and I know that. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him.
And I read that, and I look at that, and I say, when? When, Lord? How much longer do we have to wait? When are you going to come and fix this world in which we live? And then I have to remember that hope doesn't change my circumstances, but hope carries me through the circumstances. And let me take you back a little bit to those slides I showed you earlier of the city of Rotterdam. You see, when that disaster happened to our city on the 10th of May of 1940, people turned to God in droves. We had come out of the Depression. Now there was a world war. Our city was overrun. And people turned to God in droves. When I was a kid, the churches were full because the people still desperately sought God. They recognized that God had protected them. They recognized that God had delivered them. They recognized that God had brought them through. And yes, the Canadians came and liberated Holland, but ultimately Holland recognized that it was a God who was in heaven who had taken care of their circumstances and set them free. But here's what happened. When I was a kid, that city was still largely empty. And they were busy putting in the subway system, the metro. And the rebuilding was starting. And in fact, some of that downtown core stuff was already rebuilt when I was a kid. There was a store, a big store that I used to go to with my parents that was half in ruins and half was still going. And I, I remember the construction project going on. But as the rebuilding started, as as Holland started to gain wealth and confidence and all the rest of that stuff, the churches started to empty. Why? Because we got comfortable and we became independent and we no longer needed God. And sometimes I think God allows us to go through the chaos through the circumstances because it drives us to him. Because if God removed all that stuff from us, it's like someone said to me one time, who needs God when things are going good? And the church that I used to go to as a kid in the city of Rotterdam, a church where sometimes there was standing room only, a church where the kids were invited to come and sit on the pulpit steps so that there was room for adults to sit in the pews. The church, no one worships there anymore. It's become a national monument because nobody needs it, because who needs God when things are going good? So sometimes I think God allows us to go through the chaos, in order to drive us toward him. But the reality is that in the midst of that chaos, this Advent season brings us continuous hope. There is hope that God will make sense of this mess. And so what do we do? What do we do with that? 
I say, Lord, if you're so big and you're so powerful and you're coming back to straighten all this out, when is that going to happen? And God says, just hang on to that hope. It will happen in my time, in my program. But you continue to have faith and to have hope and continue to walk with me in spite of the circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we don't think you're very fair. And sometimes we go through seasons of, of peace and comfort and tranquility in our lives. And yet at times it feels like you pull the rug out from underneath us. But Lord, we trust you. We know that you are good. We know that you will restore your people. We know that Jesus Christ will come a second time to bring salvation. And oh Lord, how we long for that. And we pray as Jesus taught us that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven and that your kingdom would come. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We're dismissed.